Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dr. Chris Green, man, I don't remember the first time I heard about you, but a number of people mentioned you to me and on other podcasts. I, I know I heard you on the Everyday Theology podcast at one point, but you're yeah. just one of those like you get in this world long enough and names pop up that people go, oh, you should talk to this guy. You should talk to this guy. You should talk to this guy. Or I had this professor. She was great. You know, that kind of a thing. And you were just one of those names for a couple years then we finally met in person at the American Academy of Religion conference. Yeah. And yeah. we scheduled this chat because we basically have 45 things we could talk about. That's exactly right. I'm excited about it. You know, mainly I want to hear your story. It's it's a really interesting story. You kind of came from a much Christian, thickly sort of sociocultural, like I like the uh, religious humidity or barometric pressure. I like those mm -hmm. metaphors for yeah. this kind of thing. So, you know, how does it start? How's your story start? I think those are terrific metaphors. I, I grew up amongst like sweaty Pentecostals. That's how I refer to them. And I hadn't even considered the ways in which that resonates with your metaphor about the the density of the atmosphere. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's, like <laughs> it's a very humidity. humid, yeah. a very humid world. The town I grew up in was the heart of Oklahoma. It prided itself on being the ge geographical center, right, of 
the United States, right? Like, like essentially the heart of the heart. Why, why exactly? If you're geographic, like, what is that? Like, how does that oh. make you more American than like, I don't know, being on the Mississippi river, which would be a little East of you. I mean, yeah. no, 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 I don't. people grasp at whatever, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I mean, we can't stop making myths and stories about ourselves and assigning yeah. meaning. So, I mean, I think all of that was held somewhat loosely, at least explicitly, but I, I do think it's, it was operating, you know, below the surface all the time, right? That we, we're really American. You know, like, I don't know about uh, the people out there on the coasts, but we are really American. And, and that's part of flyover country identity, not just Oklahoma, but Kansas and Iowa or whatever else. We just casually talk about the United States, talk about America as if it's a thing, like one thing. But it is like a gnarled, snarled reality of a lot of different things that don't always play nice together. You know, you and I grew up in different different worlds, right? Not just religiously and politically, but like in, in the deepest sense, sociologically, we were inhabiting for all intents and purposes, different different worlds. They were sweaty in that way too. Those people, they were, they were workers, right? They're, my father had been a Marine. He left high school, joined the Marines, left, left the Marines, became a police officer, left the police force, became a mechanic. Right? Like that, like that's the world I grew up in. It was sweaty in that it was working class, but the spirituality was also sweaty in that it was intense, like unbelievably intense. We were at church. All the time. We went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Saturday night. Once a month, we also had a Friday night youth service, which was in no way different from the other services, <laughs> except for that label. So we went to church hundreds of times a year. Wow. Hundreds of times a year. And when we went to church, we went to church four hours at a time. You know, it was an intense, like lots and lots of singing, congregational singing. You know, everybody... You know, belting it out from their guts and, you know, sermons that lasted an hour. And then what we called altar calls where, you know, people would, would flood to the front of the church, kneel at the benches at the front, the altars and pray. And often the services wouldn't officially end. Like people would just, as they were done praying, eventually file out and some people would remain, you know, there, there was no benediction liturgically, right? There was no final word because the, the altars in that sense remained open because it was a really tight circle and a closed circle. And it's really the only world I knew until college. And e even that was intense, but it's, it's radically different from what I had grown up with. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like I'm just contrasting this with the kind of church culture that like I would prefer today. And that many of my friends grew up in, you know, mainline liberal Protestantism Maybe you go weekly, but maybe it's like twice a month. You go for an hour and 15 minutes. It's yeah. over. You say hi to everybody. You know, that kind of mid-century civic religion, yeah. right, of like, you know, everybody is sort of to some degree involved in their local church or most people in polite society and the business yeah. world. You know, it's a, it's a part of being a citizen, you know, in the fifties through, you know, mid seventies or something like that. I'm I'm so curious about a lot of aspects. One idea I have is that the ultimate, let's say the epitome or the, the sort of statistical center type of person for whom that mainline civic religion 
is really operating sort of the, you know, the opposite, the flip side of the coin of, of your family and your mm-hmm. experience. Those are people for whom like life's going pretty well, you know, yeah. and church is uh, another way of, of finding meaning, perhaps of bringing their family closer together. It's a good place to make social connections. It's a good place to make business connections. It's a part of, yeah, being in your community. And in my mind, that's really contrasting with this like thoroughly working class, sweaty in every sense. And that world doesn't have that much for us. Like we're not looking at a lot of upward mobility here and where, where we find our ability to, to maybe look upward mobility is only spiritual. Like it's like we can sort of lift our spirits, but not our economic prospects Mm -hmm. realistically. And so let's go to church five times a week. Like what else? Like maybe I'm, maybe I'm sort of filling in some blanks here in an, in an incomplete or inaccurate way, but that's where my mind is going. I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, I mean, I think it's almost impossible to map the whole territory accurately. I think mm-hmm. what you're naming is, you know, kind of socioeconomic dimensions that I think are pretty accurate. I don't think those categories exhaust the reality, though, you know, that there there's more at play, much of which I don't think we understood at all. And I'm not sure anyone understands, really. I mean, I think the the dynamics that lead to those kinds of communities churches tend to meet as often as they know they need to to hmm. be what they feel called to be without necessarily explicitly understanding that just i think we do what we feel we have to do and i think there was a way in which those communities that i grew up in those kind of middle america sweaty pentecostal communities they had a sense that the identity they were bound to to be true to required an almost monastic devotion. And of course, they would never have used the language of monasticism. I mean, it was a virulently anti-Catholic culture. Right. One of the many contradictions of that movement is that it was, for all intents and purposes, a rigorously monastic and sacramental and liturgical community who fought themselves as in utter opposition to all of that. That they were non-liturgical, they were open to the spirit. They were not like the Catholics because they weren't formalistic, even though we were unbelievably formalistic, right? Like everything we were doing was formulaic and formalized, but we didn't recognize it that way. We named it as dynamic and open-ended and free, you know, freedom in the spirit. And when you say monastic, I mean, I take it that you're referring to, first of all, sort of the schedule of the day and the week. That's right. Right. So you're, you, you're basically, you're basically praying the hours like a Benedictine monk, uh, but doing it in a, in a more secular or non-monastic context. And then also in terms of abstinence from worldly vices and pleasures. Absolutely. Right. You're this sort of the top of the heap of Christian traditions, as I understand it. And, And what's interesting is if you think of the monastic tradition as kind of the vow of poverty, celibacy and stability, as well as commitment to you know, the daily routines of prayer and the sacraments, all of those things took a particular form amongst us, right? Like the poverty was built in. That's who we were. That wasn't so and much a vow. <laughs> that wasn't a vow. It was just something that- That part wasn't escape. chosen, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You couldn't escape. But yeah. And, and you couldn't escape it because you couldn't imagine alternatives to it. They were poor folks who didn't identify as poor because there were so many poor or people around them. You know, mm. This way of life, I think, was only possible- in kind of white working class folks 
and those who belong to those communities that, you know, immigrants could participate in that in some way. In, in some circles, you had black Pentecostals who were doing similar things, but it, it required a kind of enough middle-class standing to pull it off, you know, like for instance, you know, having a car to drive to church that many times a week. Right. Right. Simple things like that. Many people in our church lived in trailer parks, you know, like that. Not my family did not, but many of the people that we attended church with did. Socioeconomically, that's where we were. But you're right about the forbidding of alcohol and cigarettes, going to the movies, gambling, right? Yeah, gambling, playing cards, absolutely. yeah, dancing. There's dancing in the service, but then, but what about like secular dances or school? No, no, that, that, that's right. But that that that's a great question, Dan, because it points to we would often talk about how dancing in the spirit is holy. And the reason other dancing is not is that it is an it's a mockery of dancing in the spirit. Hmm. So like dancing, that's the language we had for it. Dancing in the spirit was holy, but all other dancing was like the devil's imitation of dancing in the spirit. And and the same thing we would say about drinking, that alcohol is the devil's imitation for being filled with the wine of the spirit. Interesting. And this is another thing that's hard to name accurately. It was incredibly spiritualized. I mean, everything, you know, as I'm saying here, dancing in the spirit, being drunk on the spirit, falling out in the spirit, like all of this stuff was spiritual. But notice, it was all incredibly embodied, like dancing. I mean, what could be more embodied than dancing? So even though they're naming it as a spiritual thing, dancing in the spirit, right? They would say, like, the Holy Ghost is moving me. Hmm. Scholars of the tradition will say, you know, you, for a long time, it was kind of handy. You probably heard this to talk about three waves of Pentecostalism. So you kind of have the initial wave, which is now identified as classic Pentecostalism related to Azusa Street and denominations like Foursquare, Assemblies of God, Church of God, Church of God in Christ. And then you get a kind of charismatic Catholic renewal that becomes part of the larger Pentecostal movement. And then a neo-Pentecostal movement that is non-denominational. It's post-denominational is probably a better way of naming it. And it's coming on the other side of the Catholic charismatic renewal. Now scholars will say it's it's not so much three distinct waves as a, a bunch of different movements that are kind of collapsing into and out of each other. There's something about the spirituality that we think of when we, we say Pentecostal that has an egalitarian impulse in it, right? Uh, I have a, a good friend who just did a paper about this and he, he was pointing to this this very fact that it's like politically and both ecclesially and nationally and internationally, those Pentecostals tend to be drawn toward authoritarian leaders. But the worship experience itself tends not to be authoritarian, but egalitarian. And this, so there's this kind of this is another one of the contradictions that I think is kind of right at the heart, just like I was saying a moment ago about all the language of spirituality, but it's incredibly embodied It's sweaty. Right. Like it has a it has a particular smell. One of the things I do with my students a lot in a course is to have them close their eyes and imagine being located in a particular worship service. And, you know, I can say things like, you know, imagine yourself in a medieval Spanish cathedral. What do you smell? What do you see? What do you hear? And they can imagine it. Right. Even if they've never been to Spain, even if they've never been in a cathedral, they can imagine it. And if I say to them, you know, imagine yourself in an old school Pentecostal church, same thing, they can name it. But if I ask them to tell me what they see in a mega church, it's it's fascinating the, the ways in which 
how antiseptic that actually is. And a lot of Pentecostal churches now have imitated that model. They've kind of lost their own, you know, they've been drained of their own blood, so to speak. That embodiment strikes me as such a distinguishing feature, right? Like when I think about what church does for people at a psychological level, I think psychologically also in terms of biological, right? Like I, yes. I put those together Absolutely. and like, what's it doing for people? And part of me really wishes I could have the sort of regular, whether or not it's always ecstatic, it's at least kind of working something through my system, through my system, quite literally, you know, a little mm. bit of adrenaline, some endorphins, yes, really sort of connecting to the, the other individual bodies around me sort of being swept up in the moment you know, the kind of thing that we all seek at rock concerts and EDM festivals and fucking Burning Man or whatever we do. Absolutely. Right. Like to have that three times a week sounds pretty great for my nervous system. Uh, of course, if it was traumatizing, it'd be really bad for my nervous system. But like, you know, all, I don't know. So I just kind of want to start there because I do want to ask you about the theology as well. Mm-hmm. That being, you know, one of your areas of expertise. But like, can you talk just more about like what separates Pentecostal experiences and services bodily from Protestant, Catholic, other types of services. Yeah. 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 There's something cathartic about it. Marcia Clark and Cheryl Sanders, um, who both happen to be black Pentecostal scholars. They've drawn attention to the fact that what's happening in those kind of very embodied experiences of dancing loud praying, what what is called shouting, which is kind of a, a mixture of dancing and screaming. Lots of prostration, kneeling, running, jumping, this kind of sweaty embodiment, right? Marcia Clark and Cheryl Sanders have pointed out to the ways in which that was doing something psychologically and biologically and shouldn't be downplayed, that it was an aspect of healing, right? There was a way in which healing was being bodied forth right like the if if we talk about the body keeping the score then pentecostal worship in those ways that sweaty pentecostalism is a way of kind of evening the score again that i think is a distinguishing feature that what pentecostals say about themselves and what people say about pentecostalism who study it from outside is almost always missing the real point right and the real point i think is this kind of radical embodiment of laying on of hands of falling out before the Lord, this this cry, you know, pouring out your heart. And I think that both the the beauty and and the terror of the spirituality is there. It's in the ways in which your your body is at peril in these spaces. And it it is therapeutic, but I think it it can often get unhinged or unleashed in ways that become uncontrollable. Sarah Coakley theologian has written a lot about the ways in which our desires are entangled. Our desire for God is entangled with all of our other desires. And so when we're praying, then all of those desires are coming to the surface. And if if she's right, and I, I think she is, then some of what's happening in this sweaty Pentecostal spirituality is all of the stuff that's in our unconscious, right, is being pulled to the surface by how out of control we are. And that can be very healing, but it also puts you at risk and puts other people at risk in ways you would really need wise and discerning people to handle. 
And in many of our communities, there weren't enough wise people to handle everything that surfaced in the, in the heat of the experience. Yeah, I love that. I love that we're headed there to sort of what's needed to responsibly handle, you know, it's like, it's like biting into the hot pocket right after it comes out of the microwave, right? The bad idea. (laughs) Someone's got to tell you that little, that little cardboard wrapper. Okay. You can hold it, but like, you gotta, man, you gotta give this a few minutes. Um, (laughs) But like what motivates that embodiedness? Like what is the fuel that gets people to want or need that embodied experience like like does the theology it's almost more of an anthropology like you're talking about it's like everything is spiritualized it's super enchanted to use you know charles taylor's secular age language you know there's a demon potentially around every corner and an angel around every corner that's maybe a mischaracterization but you know like Not, not by much i mean to map the territory well we would have to make a distinction between types of Pentecostals and the ways that they're engaging the miraculous and the the enchanted. But I don't think it is a mischaracterization to say that they inhabit a world that's charged with presences, good and evil. I, I think that's I think that's right. And in that way, it's medieval. Its sensibilities are pre-modern. I was just gonna say, isn't it way earlier than that? Like I'm thinking of like shamanistic practices. I'm thinking of like the medicine man dances in Africa. I'm thinking of hunter gatherer type, you know, Aboriginal spirituality. Sure. Like, no, I, yeah, I think it, you know what I mean? Like it yeah. seems like it goes to animism, like all the way back there in terms of not necessarily the particular beliefs. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that Pentecostalism is some sort of Christian disguised paganism or something, but in terms of like, yeah, that, sort of the world is shot through with this stuff and in order to exercise it and exercise ourselves, like it it has to be done physically and, and you get your heart rate up and all that, you know? Exactly. And this is why, I mean, that little wordplay you just had there on exorcise and exercise. I mean, that's, that's the genius of the spirituality. It's what you body forth that becomes real for you. Right. So everything from the offering to prayer is about what you do with your body, even though the language that's being used is about spirituality. One of the ways that this hit me was we grew up singing this song, I'll Fly Away. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Or of if course, you're here, yeah. You're with it. Oh, glory. It's the old camp meeting song, right? I'll fly yeah. away, oh glory, I'll fly away. There's a line in the song, just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away. I grew up singing it. It was you know, in my mother's milk, as we say. And then I became a theology student and thought, what a disaster. Like what mm-hmm. I mean, what could be worse than that? Right. And then NT Wright comes along much later and is, is sharply critical of that kind of what he calls like disembodied spirituality. And one day I'm preparing for a lecture I have to give, and I'm going to make a comment about I'll fly away and the disembodied spirituality. And when I did, I realized that yeah, the lyrics are about escapism. The lyrics are about getting out of this world. But the experience of singing it couldn't have possibly been more worldly. Like in terms of just the actual bodily experience, it was like a bar or a game, you know, or a dance around a fire in the middle of the night. Like it had that kind of shamanistic phenomena to it, right? 
So even though lyrically, yeah, it's suggesting something else, that's not what was happening to us. Like if if McLuhan is right, the medium <laughs> was so much more powerful than whatever message the lyric supposedly had, right? So I, I think it's really important to kind of, and you've done this well, kind of put your finger like that's what sets Pentecostalism apart, not the theology it purports to have, not not even really what it has to say about speaking in tongues or spiritual gifts or miracles. Like this is what sets it apart. The reason a moment ago I said medieval is that Walter Hollenweger, who was the first person to do a PhD study on Pentecostalism. So he's a German research student writing about the global Pentecostal movement, and he's writing in the 70s and 80s. And he publishes this, this work, having studied the first 70 years, basically, of the movement. And in that, he says that Pentecostalism globally now, not just in the U.S., is a form of blood and wound mysticism. Hmm. And that's a medieval term, right? So it's a, a spirituality that, of the Middle Ages on the other side of the Black Death, where people, there's a spirituality that forms around sharing the woundedness of Jesus, hmm. a blood and wounds mysticism. Gene Rogers, who's an Episcopal theologian, has written a lot over the last few years about blood in the Christian tradition. And if anybody, if you haven't read it, I highly encourage everybody to read it. It's strange, but it's so illuminating. Well, he and I got together once to talk about this, and I was I was saying to him, like, Gene, I love everything you're saying, but you need to talk about the ways Pentecostals talk about the blood. And of course, he had no experience with this, right? And so I he had he had not heard of the bloodline. I don't know if this is language that's familiar to you. No. Or not. So the bloodline is essentially you can invoke the blood of Jesus to set a protective barrier or a kind of limit. So in the churches I grew up in, they would sometimes preach to sinners who were in the house or to backsliders, as we called them, people who who knew better but were out in sin and violating their conscience. And the preachers would sometimes, in the altar call, say, and I had this very vivid memory as a child being given this huge King James Bible by the preacher and told to go to the back door and set it at the back door, at the threshold. And then he says to everybody, and this was a common, common trick, would say to everybody, if you walk out now without coming forward, like instead of coming to the altar, you go out the door, you're stepping over the bloodline. And that means you're stepping out of the protection of God. Like you're you're going out from the presence of the Lord in the language of Genesis. You're 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 putting yourself at hazard because you're stepping out of the hedge of protection that God gives you, right? And I don't know historically where that comes from, but I know it was right at the heart of the spirituality that I grew up in, right? So to pick up on that thread, as I think you know, and listeners mostly know, I developed a a scale for measuring spiritual abuse exposure rather mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. exposure to potentially spiritually abusive experiences or harmful experiences. And one of those subtypes I call embracing violence. Mm -hmm. And that's just like my subheading for, you know, the way that the, the statistical analysis grouped these items together, right. Yeah. That yeah. On this massive list of, of items. It's an acceptance of a bloody, violent world in which God normally and as a matter of course uses violence, 
right? Mm-hmm. So uh, there are different ways that this might manifest. The sort of obviously abusive ones are like, you know, using scripture to justify physical violence or, a, sure. you know, yeah. child yeah. parent abuse kind of a thing, right? So, all right, not a ton of gray area there. But maybe more gray area in terms of is it abusive or not? Eye of the beholder is like, you know, teaching children about hell, Satan, demons, the end of the world yeah. when they're quite young. Um, yeah. You know, from my perspective now, I would say that's developmentally inappropriate. It's it's not going to yield good mm. things for yeah. for yeah. kids who can't process that in context yet. And for me, that was certainly true. And that was the only real sort of church trauma I ever had was around end times teachings. But it's also this idea that like, (laughs) like I recognize that my view that God abhors violence and that like, no, 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 God is not for violence. Like God might find a way to use it for good, but basically Mm. God is nonviolent. That is a position I hold from a place of pretty extraordinary material privilege. Mm -hmm. Uh, We like one of the things that we talked about early on in my doctoral education was the difference between honor culture and dignity culture. Mm. So dignity culture is like, you're going to come at me or affront me. Like I'm going to be silent and I'm going to utilize the police and the legal system and the structures of society. Honor culture is like, I have to take this on directly and you know, police be damned kind of a thing. Cause I don't have institutional exactly rescuers, right? Like there's no one there for me if I don't yep. do it. So yeah. And so you see honor culture in like Appalachian culture. You also see it in like black urban culture where you right. feel like the police are not actually, they don't have your best interests at heart. So you're going to, you're going to meet out your own justice. That's right. right. And so obviously there's a privilege tied to this stuff. Um, at the same time, I have real concerns about, what it means for a Christianity that does embrace violence as a regular part. But you're kind of helping me get some language around why for some people that would seem so natural and so obvious Mm -hmm. that it would be so kind of blood soaked. And, you know, I'm going to socioeconomics, but it's not just socioeconomic, you know, it's all that stuff becomes real pain. It becomes real injury. It becomes, you know, hospital systems that aren't, attuned to you and your community, you know, all that stuff. Absolutely. And I I do think we have to name here that the kind of Pentecostalism we're talking about, old school, sweaty Pentecostalism is black and Appalachian. That's what it is. The Pentecostalism that's dominant now, the the kind of TV Pentecostalism, you know, Mm. the, the Pentecostalism of Christian television is wildly different than the Pentecostalism I grew up in and that you and I are discussing. And what I grew up in, even though my church was explicitly racist and all white, it spirituality was incredibly black, right? In that, I mean, that's just where its roots were. Those were the songs we sang. Those were the sermons we preached. That's That was the spirituality that formed us. And it's another one of the contradictions, right, that, that I grew up with. I happen to think that all traditions are contradicted. Hmm. But I think Pentecostalism, precisely because it is so primitive in the best sense, the contradictions are jarring because they're they're kind of unmistakable because they've been they've been kind of boiled down to this raw essence. 
early on in Pentecostalism, like when we're talking about the early 1900s, 1906, 1907, the Azusa Street Revival is booming, led by William Seymour, black Pentecostal holiness preacher who's son of slaves. He's a son of slaves. Think about that, right? And he's been in Indianapolis and then Houston and now in L.A. He's been kicked out of churches. He's explicitly defying the laws about meeting in interracial ways. And Charles Parham, he's the guy who gives us the language of initial evidence, at least the one who popularizes it. He's a major early teacher in the movement, had actually... It's from Parham that Seymour had learned about Pentecostal, the the Pentecostal blessing, Acts 2, as a promise for all believers. And But Parham is like a world-class racist. I mean, he's a British Israelite and who has a whole hierarchy of racial authority. And his understanding of Pentecostalism is that it is especially rational and white. I mean, th- those are his terms, that it's the most rational of all spiritualities. But he loses out. What wins out is Seymour's Pentecostalism. And when when Parham comes to L.A. to try to take over the mission from Seymour, you know, he, he decries all of this that you and I have been describing as animistic, as demonic, as African, right? So he he recognizes the things that you are you and I are seeing, but of course for him those things were stigmatized as beneath him as a white man. And he started a mission not far away in which he that he said was the real Pentecostalism, which was rational. But he loses. Like that's not what the movement becomes, at least not for a while. I think once you in the U.S. though the large white Pentecostal denominations. Once we get into the civil rights movement, they lose touch with most of that. What's odd, at least, is that the church I grew up in in the 70s and 80s was a holdover from this kind of pre-civil rights spirituality. It was like an enclave that hadn't caught up to the the larger Pentecostal movement. So they they saw themselves as standing against the charismatic renewal and against what was happening in the large churches. and they were clinging to this Pentecostal spirituality, even though in many ways, again, they, they were living in contradiction to the, to the heart of it. What's the connection between what you're calling the charismatic renewal and like what we would normally think of as the prosperity gospel, Joel Osteen's and yeah. T.D. Jakes's. I'm not sure if T.D. Jakes quite qualifies, but I think he probably does. Yeah. I mean, it's different because he's, you know, a black man from West Virginia who his story is very different from, you know, Joel Osteen's, but this is contested. Historians of the movement argue about kind of where it begins. I think what I would say is I, I think it is a backlash against the poverty of the of the original generations. So at least one way of telling part of the story, how about if I put it like that, is that you have a lot of kind of third and fourth generation Pentecostals who've experienced with their parents and grandparents, they've experienced some social lift, enough social lift that they can imagine a different way of being Pentecostal. And is this like eighties and nineties when the U S economy is booming? And so the eighties is when it really shifts. I mean, it starts before that. I mean, you can see the language is already there, Yeah, but that's where it gets decisive. Yeah. In the eighties and nineties. Yeah. So then that that's a, a fairly straightforward sort of line to draw of that's the material 
difference that enables this rethinking theologically? When you get up close to any particular tree, of course, it's a different story, right? In that even very early on, there's already signs that some Pentecostals are talking in ways. I mean, there's some early, very early Pentecostals who are convinced that they're not going to die. The rapture is going to come before they die and that there is going to be a transfer of wealth, right? So that language that isn't only appearing in the word of faith movement, the word of faith movement doesn't come from nowhere, right? There are precedents and anticipations, but it it can't really become the movement. We now know where you've got, you know, pastors of churches with thousands of people in private jets and, you know, donor bases like that. That's not possible until the eighties and nineties, I think. And of course that's all tied to Christian television, I think. So there's the techno, there's the technological angle as well. The sort of the, like you mentioned McLuhan earlier, right? The medium is the message. So once TV stations can be started more or less independently outside of the, the three or four big broadcasting companies, well, now you're going to get a message that fits that medium and it's going to be beamed into millions of households effectively for free for the, for the end user. That's right. And one of the things about, there's so many contradictions that I, I see in all that. One is one of the things that leads to this massive growth of Pentecostalism is Pentecostal teaching. So what's being broadcast via television are ideas, you know, teachers, yeah, not the experience of being in the room. Yeah, you're sitting in your easy chair with your TV dinner or your cup of coffee. It's yeah. it's unembodied. It's it's literally disembodied. Exactly. Right? So this is you know you mentioned Foursquare earlier. I mean, Sister Amy, founder of the Foursquare. I mean, she's on radio and television from the jump. Right. I mean, Pentecostals are quick to say yes to every technology to get the word out. Right. And many of them understand themselves as teachers and preachers. Yeah, that is really, really interesting. It it strikes me too, that once you have radio or TV, then you've got this kind of quick feedback loop. Maybe the best example of this is like Trump rallies in our modern times, right? Like he, he'll just throw out 30 things in a rally and the four or five that get the, the, the best applause, he'll recycle those. And then he'll eventually come up with like, Oh, you know what? It's make America great again. That's the one yes, that's or the it's one that lock her up or it's sleepy Joe or it's whatever the, f- you know? So, so once you've got that, well, now you've got a bunch of people and, and this is where if you are a grifter, this is your time to come in because you can get much quicker feedback at a much larger scale than yes. having to go do this thing in person all the time and, and yes. get a little bit of info at a time. And then a certain kind of message, really a, a, probably a new set of theological claims that mm-hmm. is close enough, but doing its own thing, you figure out what people want to hear. And yeah. in my mind, that's how you get to Osteen, who is like maximally tuned to what people would like to be told is God's will for them mm-hmm. for whatever set of reasons. And he's just like the clear, a clear, perfect instantiation of exactly what we want in front of us or what enough people want in front of them. And that really wouldn't be possible without, or it would take so much longer in an analog situation versus, versus a big digital broadcast. That's right. And, And another thing to name here, right, is, and I think this is tied up with 
the rigor of the spirituality, what what we've been calling monastic spirituality. It's also been, and I'm not a sociologist, so I, I should be careful here, but my I think this is a part of I think it's it's deeply American, but it's also poor. And I think it's a it's a it's a kind of genius learn from black Americans and from immigrants that you have to be able to move in multiple spaces at the same time and co- what we would now call code switch. Mm-hmm. So I think part of what happens with a ministry like Osteen, I don't think that people are just that stupid, like that they only want to hear what they want to hear. I think the reason you get ministries like Osteen's where you have this kind of global, massive global voice doing a particular thing is that almost everyone who's involved in that is involved in that and other stuff too. So they're doing Osteen for this thing, hmm. but they've got other voices and other ways of being where they're they're drawing on other things, right? And I, I mean, that still sets you up for all kinds of problems. I'm ornery about this. Like, I actually don't think that personality cults and the what grows up around these mega church personalities or mega ministry personalities, I don't think that's a result of people being really stupid. I think it's it has to do with the dynamics of that particular class of people and the way they order their lives. They know they need this thing and they can get this here but they're going to get something else tomorrow somewhere else. Right. And so I, I think that that doesn't solve all the problems, but I do think it helps us humanize it a little bit. So you don't just have, you know, they're in true detective season one. I don't know if you watched the, watched it. Such a, oh, you mean like a, uh, the Bible part two? Yeah. That's how highly <laughs> I think of that season. <laughs> yeah. It's an incredible season, right? You, so you remember yeah. the scene where they're at the tent revival and rust it's just, you know, like no one here is going to split the atom, right? And he's he's assuming a lot of people do, a lot of scholars as well as kind of popular critics assume that these are large crowds because they're peopled with stupid people. But I don't think that, I mean, I'm sure there are stupid people in the room, but that's not what, having been in those crowds many, many, many times, having been on the stages in some of those settings and in the audience and many more, I, I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's much more about resourcing a particular dynamic right there's a way in which it's it's like we're going to go into this part of town to grab this thing right but it's not the only thing when we come back home to make the meal right we're actually throwing together stuff we got from a lot of different grocers and from somebody else's farm you know like it's it's much more piecemeal it's a patchwork quilt spirituality that can make raids on these positive, huge, tell me what I want to hear moments, but it's not built entirely of that, at least not traditionally. Now, I think that what's happened over the last few, since the eighties is that we've built a kind of spirituality in which that is enough for some people. Now, when they're privileged back to what you were saying about like people whose lives are okay and they don't need church for much, it's a socialization front, then Osteen's brand works for that too, right? Even if that's not how it grew and it's not the crowds that made it possible, it can function that way for, for folks. And I think that we're seeing that more and more and more, right? It's becoming an end in itself rather than something that people are resourcing amongst many other things. It becomes a, you know, it's enough. 
it's enough and we can go on from there. Look, I know I do this every week. I tell you about the Patreon campaign and why it might be a good idea to join it for $5 a month. The number one reason that people tell me that they join it is to support the work that I'm doing on this show financially. We do have some costs. Editor Josh, producer Josh costs some money, um, but it's also, you know, something I put a lot of time and effort into um, and a lot of myself into is probably the way to say it. And I really appreciate it when people value that uh, and think it's worth, you know, spending a little bit of money, five bucks a month. And what I try and do um, is give some real value back for that. So there are two exclusive episodes each month that come to patrons, as well as ad-free and uncut versions of these main feed episodes. So you get a little bit more context with the client, and you don't have to listen to any ads. Um, And I feel like that's a pretty good situation. I think it's a good value add, and I'm also super grateful to the people who have turned this into a part-time job for me. Uh, And I'd love to be able to spend even more time on it as we go forward. So uh, the most recent patron exclusive episode is another Generation Gap Culture Hour with Josh and Tony Jones. We talk about codependency, which is now normally called enmeshment, a question that Josh brought in. And then we talk about this Caitlin Beatty article about luxury Christians and money. And we get fairly candid uh, about money and, you know, uh, owning homes, having luxury items, having um, you know, the, the sort of meaning for us personally behind those items. What are we trying to, you know, to get to sort of the, the heart issue of it, what are we hoping that our houses or our watches or our cars or our clothing or whatever, what are we hoping that it, it signifies to other people? Are we trying to show the world that we've made it? Is it a status thing? And how can a Christian do that? How should we think about that stuff? Uh, It's a, I think, a fascinating question, and I get pretty vulnerable on this episode talking about it. So if you're interested in vulnerability from me, that's fine if you're not. But if you are, I would would give that one a listen. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke, the link's in the show notes. And okay, let's get back to the episode. I have friends who will sometimes put on worship music, just like straight up standard Hillsong, whatever it is, because they like the positivity. You know, it's like they're not worshiping God. I mean, maybe they are. They're they're not doing what I was trained, you know, as an evangelical to believe was worshiping God, like turning my attention to the personhood of God from my personhood, praising God. They're just like – and you think about the – the K Love, which is the biggest Christian radio station, it's just what is it? Uh, positive, uplifting K Love. That's yeah. the tagline. Nothing about God in there, <laughs> right? Like it's not. It. It's not a part of their advertising. And <laughs> and just I just to be perfectly clear, I don't think that people at Trump rallies or Osteen, you know, stadium services are stupid or more stupid mm-hmm. than other people. In fact, I I like what you're saying. Like they're they're getting one thing that they want or need, you know, with, with, with Trump, there's different things that people are probably getting. Some people are getting 
a mirror of the resentment they feel. Some people, you know, some people miss religion and this is the closest thing. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things. And I'm sure there's multiple things that people get from Osteen. My two biggest qualms with prosperity gospel are no longer the kind of high-minded theological qualms that I used to have, you know, when I, when that was kind of closer to the center of things for me. Now mine are like when poor people are financially exploited by them and and these extravagant, you know, giving drives um, so that, you know, Strickland and all these, or what's Ken, uh, what's Ken's Copeland, Copeland Copeland. and all these, all these shitheads can, you know, whatever. And then the other thing is psychologically the the sense that there is an equation in the Mm. universe where Mm -hmm. if you get your inputs right, then things will go good for you because that's how God has set things up. And that is like so bad for people who experience trauma um, and and other kinds of negative. I mean, it's like, yeah, I have my theological problems with it. Sure. It's not. True. <laughs> it's not biblical. <laughs> right. it, it's yeah, like right. a, yeah. it, it's not, it, that's exactly the kind of thing that I would actually say is that's human beings coming up with an, a solution to a, a need they have to solve their own anxiety. Well, it yeah. must be something someone did because mm-hmm. otherwise the world is too chaotic yeah. and I get it. I get the impulse for that, but it's, it can be so, so damaging. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't want to pile on to the armchair theologians who knock Osteen for his lack of theological rigor. That's really not yeah. my primary thing. Well, I do. I, yeah, I completely agree. The lack of theological rigor is a tell. It's a tell about the way in which ministry has come to work in so many of our circles. And I, I think it is problematic. I, and I do think there are grifters uh, in, you know, many of whom whose names have come up already and would be easy enough to name. Uh, so it's not the case that I, I don't think that there are grifters, but I think I think the case is it's just really complicated in terms of I I don't think the crowd is often getting taken advantage of in the ways we think. In fact, very often, I think these personalities at the center are being used by the crowd rather than using the crowd. They, yeah. They're they're functioning in a in a dramatic way. Like they're they're a they're a focal point for anxiety, for imagining different futures. Like they they have a stage presence for a reason, you know, that the crowd needs, which doesn't make it right or good. But it's a different set of problems than just a wolf preying on sheep. Absolutely, right? and I think you talk to. Any number of center right, you know, pastors since Trump's election over the last seven years and ask them how much sway or influence over the sociopolitical lives of their congregants they thought they had. And now how much do they think they have? And to what extent are they yeah. being used by their own congregants? And oh, if, if you contradict what we believe too much, we'll just fire you and find a new guy. That's right. Exactly so right. totally agree. I want to pivot and talk a little bit about this idea of denominations as risk reward, something that, that you and I had a fun time talking about, and then we can apply it to, you know, specifically to Pentecostalism. So the idea that, that I was kind of kicking around, this is a year and a half ago when we were, when we were hanging out is that one way you can think of 
uh, different strains of religion that you might participate in is through the idea of risk reward upside, you know, high or low upside, high or low downside. Take something like that I'm drawn to like Episcopalianism, right? So very low downside. And in the moment, I'm actually really happy about that because I want to raise my son in Christianity of some sort. And I'm keenly aware of the ways that he could be harmed intentionally or unintentionally, usually unintentionally in certain, you know, church settings. And I love that like the Episcopal Sunday school curriculum writers and teachers are going to be fucking terrified of harming any children. (laughs) I like, that's a great strength at this phase of my life, right? Because he's going to get Jesus. He's going to have concepts to attach to all of these things and we'll have family language and he will have uh, a legitimate sort of shot at a Christian faith of his own. However, there is also low reward. Mm -hmm. My sense is that there of course can be different examples, but you don't hear a whole lot of radical conversion to Episcopalianism stories. It doesn't seem to have (laughs) the sort of teeth the yeah. same kind of power, right? Yes. But then, okay, then flip it over. Uh, a high power, high reward situation yeah. of, you know what? God called this guy to be a Baptist pastor out of nowhere. He's got a tongue of fire on him. He's yeah. just whatever. And then like that dude could end up being a grifter and Absolutely. super high risk for abuse yeah. and damage. Yeah. I don't know if you can get around this. That's kind of one question I have is like, can you separate risk from reward? If you could, that'd be the ultimate sort of church model, <laughs> Yeah, you know, but anyway, so I just think this is such a interesting idea and I know that you have thoughts on it. So we'll just start oh, there do. at the generic. I do. And I, I think some of it depends on what you think the risks are that are worth taking. So like, again, just in terms of my own, my own sensibilities, I think even when you have low risk of direct blunt trauma, that doesn't mean you're not at risk of what happens without the kind of formative pressure of intense spirituality. Yeah, so, so totally. for example, I remember in a meeting years, this is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I'm in a church meeting with kind of the pastoral staff. And one of the pastors said something to the effect of, we need to be a kind of church where our kids, when they want to, and kind of step into the faith if they want to, where they don't feel pressured to be Christian. And I had this, like, I, it was a real eye-opening moment for me because what, what I felt in that moment is, no, 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 I don't want my kids to feel pressured to perform as if they're Christian, but I do want them to feel as if being Christian is something that's given to them yeah, because of whose they are. They're mine, therefore they belong to this community. They don't, hmm. it's not something that matters so little that they could take it or leave it later. It's definitive for them, but I don't want them to feel the pressure of performing to that, but I'm willing to risk that pressure in order to have that identity. Can I give an example from pop culture? Yeah, please. So I just thoroughly enjoyed the Hulu series Fleischman's in Trouble. Yeah. My if wife don't want, it, we like to do. Yeah. Okay. So if you don't want any spoilers, skip ahead 60 or 90 seconds here, but you know, in the final episode and kind of the climactic Judaism scene. So it's about this 
yeah. these these three Jewish friends in New York, they go through various trials and tribulations and they became friends on a birthright Israel trip or something something like that uh, as a part of growing up Jewish. And in the sort of climactic scene with Fleischman, the main guy and his daughter, she decides not to be bot mitzvahed. And he really leans into this kind of, you know, urban progressive, the kind of thing you're talking about. He's like, you know what? Okay, uh, you don't have to do it. Ultimately, you know, this is all your choice entirely. But I thought that that was really in tension with the fact that the biggest source of community and meaning and groundedness in his life was the friends he made, not just those three, but all the other group who get yes. together a couple times a year that were on this Israel trip together. Absolutely. Yeah. And if he hadn't been raised with a bit more religious expectation, like mm-hmm. he had more of that expectation from his parents and he went on this trip and he then has a lifelong group of friends and a community yeah. that now is he going to, is his daughter not going to get that? Like that's the cost. And you, of course, the more invested you are as a preteen an adolescent, a 20 something in a church community, man, you can get up in those communities. You also are more likely to make lifelong, meaningful grounding friendships. It's really, it's a, it is a kind of a catch 22. As far as I think about it, I like how you're talking about, well, which risks do you want to take? That's right. Yeah. And I I do think it absolutely will work if you have wise, gentle souls to help you navigate. I mean, it won't work in the sense that you're not going to be harmed or damaged because I, I, again, this does not excuse any of it, but that's going to happen. Like, I, I think that's just built into the human experience. So we have to kind of decide what can we live with and how do we confront what we can't live with? But I do think it comes down to either those people are in your circles or they're not. If they are, then you're going to be okay in the long run. If they're not, then you're not going to be okay in the long run. Not to be too stark about it, but I don't think there's any way around without, especially older, wise people. Not all of them are old, but very often are older people who, who've kind of seen it and been through it. Like Without those voices, like I, th- I think it is going to be overwhelming and we are going to be overmatched by it. But I, I I think an interesting question for people to consider is if you weren't like whatever your religious commitment is at the moment, if you were to leave that for something else, like what is the thing that might draw you away? What would that be? And for me, it's absolutely Judaism. Like the, that sense of my individual faith is kind of beside the point. What matters is there is a people that has an identity to which I answer. So many folks in my circles, right, are Jewish theologians and philosophers, academics, many of whom do not confess personal faith, but they're absolutely faithful people. Many of them go to synagogue, they even say their prayers, certainly study their scriptures. They have a sense of responsibility to the people. Like, that's what my sensibilities are. So if I weren't the Christian theologian that I am, that's where I would go. I wouldn't go to unbelief, right? You know, how much of that is just sensibility? How much, I, I mean, obviously we're in deep, deep waters there, but that is why I think I process these things the way that I do. Like, I, I think the risks associated with that are the risks I'm willing to take for my for my own sake and the sake of my kids and the people that I love. If you weren't 
an Anglican pastor, Anglican priest currently, would you risk that with your kids at a sweaty Pentecostal rural church or is that too risky? Only if, if I knew who the pastor was, there are a few people that I could say, yes, I would trust my family to those people, but not just generically. <laughs> like, like, no, 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 absolutely not. I think the monastic life is a calling for a reason and not everyone should be forced into that. And if you do force people into that, it is going to be damaging. Yeah. So I think part of what happened to Pentecostalism is that it was a lay monastic spirituality that became popular hmm. and became popular for ways the leaders did not, in re, for reasons the leaders did not understand. And then they became victims of their own popularity. They got caught up in the success of it. But even raising your children into a monastic order, is a, that's a weird thing, right? Like they need to have their own call if they're called to this on a, you know, top top two percentile approach or whatever, however you want to sort of think about it as being like, you know, the, the most serious folks, like that's a call. It's like yeah. a call to ministry. You don't, you're not just like raised to be a pastor most of the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. One of the things I've done with my own kids for what it's worth. And I mean, it'll be interesting to see what they say 20 years from now, what not just what they say to me, but what they say to the therapists and what they say to their friends and their, their spouses. But is I've, I've wanted to, and, I, and I've tried to communicate this to them in every way I, I know how, that I want them to be in and around church in ways that they will come to understand when they need to. Like, to me, the damage comes, and I think a lot of the damage that I personally suffered was I could sense as a kid the intensity. Like, I knew that I was in a charged atmosphere. And I was a bright kid. I was a curious kid. And I think even then had a bent toward, you know, the work that I do now. But I was still a kid, which meant that I was constantly experiencing being overpowered, being dominated. And that, it marked me. It it damaged me, right, in all kinds of ways. Because I wasn't just around it, observing it. I was thrust into the middle of it. I was made to be a participant in it. And I, I want my kids to have a sense that, hey, these are the things, you know, just yesterday I was letting my son know, yeah, we have Monday, Thursday service, we have Good Friday service, and we're going to be there. <laughs> and he wasn't, you know, ecstatic about that, which is fine by me. I don't need him to be ecstatic, but I'm going to put his behind in those seats, right? I'm not looking for him to have an experience there. Like, I'm not looking, you know, to leave Good Friday service and him have tears in his eyes like, you know, I want Jesus in my heart. Like, to me, that would be a sign that we're putting a kind of pressure on him he shouldn't feel. But what I do hope is 20 years from now, there's a formation that's happened, you know, over these years that is useful for him when he's a father, when he's a husband, you know, whatever it is that whatever he gives his life to. So that that's what I'm hoping for. Right. That's. If it can work out like I want it to, that's what I would like to see. Not for my kids to be really intensely spiritual. But you know that 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 kind of people throw this around all the time. I'm spiritual but not religious. And then some people are religious but not spiritual. I I think it's better for kids to be religious than spiritual and for adults to be more spiritual than religious. Like that that somewhere around the middle of our life that needs to needs to flip. But the religion needs to be built into our bodies, right? We need the language, we need the concepts, we need the practices, 
And then when you're an adult, right? When you're fully formed, your brain is functioning, when you have a, a network of friends given to you by that religion, then you need to be a healthy enough person to have a spirituality of your own. So that, again, those are broad strokes. Yeah, there's a developmental sort of lens for that, which is that, yeah. you know, you don't really develop abstract thought, you know, until eh, 12, 13, 14. That's when it kind of starts developing. And yeah. if if we're talking, you know, it depends on how we want to define these terms, spirituality and, and yeah. religion. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. the way I take you to mean is, you know, a personal uh, spirituality, like a personal felt sense of connection with God or, or yes. nature or the universe. That is what I'm talking about. Yes. Right. That kind of individualized thing that uh, can be expansive and sort of go beyond boundaries and all that. But that makes sense to me. And you can't really, you just don't have that. You Now, I do think there's good evidence, Lisa Miller, Justin Barrett, and others, that kids have spirituality capacities from from the get-go. Oh, absolutely. Uh, defined slightly differently, more like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. transcendence and, and, a, and a higher, be, you know, sort of like being able to address God, being able to yes. sort of be in communication in some sense with a higher being, a higher power. But in terms of what they learn of any sort of practice of faith, you know, it's basically all parents up through kindergarten, first, second grade, and then they start to be able to, I'm using Fowler's stages of faith here, which I think works better in the early years than later, yeah, the later stages. But like, you know, then six to 12, roughly, you know, then they can kind of like, all right, I'm 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 picking up on religious convention practices from beyond just my mom and dad and yeah. the other caregivers in my life to like my teachers or other adults at church or my friends, yeah. my older siblings, you know, like all that stuff is it really, you have to be in and around repeated actions to That's learn right. them. You know, like, yes. like I never learned how to pray five times a day towards Mecca because I didn't fucking grow up Muslim. Right. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know how to think about various Hindu deities and, and mm-hmm. at what points in my life I might address them. Cause I didn't grow up in, in India. I didn't grow yeah. up Hindu. So yeah. you, you're just going to get what you get from your community and that. So I like your formulation there as long as I can kind of spin it that way. I want to, I would want immediately want to trouble it too, in terms of here's an example of how this can go wrong. The, the talk about hell, the churches I grew up in talked about hell all the time in terrifying ways. Yeah. Like, Two quick stories. One is one of the first sermons I recall, and I, I have a kind of weird memory anyway, but I, I can recall a lot of stuff. But one of the earliest ones I can recall is a, a woman preacher. The title of her sermon was Interviews in Hell. And she went through hell, you know, in this sermon, just interviewing folks, right? Like identify, calling them by name and asking them questions. And it, it kind of culminated with Judas. And 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 I, I want to call this up because one, I'm I'm a little kid. I mean, I'm six, seven years old, and I remember it vividly. Right? Yeah. I, mean, I can remember where my body was when the sermon was being given. I can remember, you know, the what the woman who was preaching was wearing. You know, it's like it's that kind of vivid, right? And it awakened my imagination in all kinds of ways, and there was a certain power to it. But it was absolutely terrifying too. You know, like it was too much. It was it was turned up too high for me. So I had the capacity even then 
to be aware of it. In fact, I'm sure nobody else in that room remembers it, including the woman who gave it, right? So I, I was more attuned to it in some ways than anyone else there, but precisely because I was so sensitive, it was too much, right? Like it was, it was harmful to me because it was introduced at a time in which I could so easily be imprinted. And then another, and this is much more terrifying, I'm probably 12 or 13. It's a youth service. The preacher is preaching. He has a pot of boiling water and strips of raw meat. And he's talking about what it will mean to be in hell for us because of our sins. He has money laid out on the pulpit and he's offering to give one of the bills. He has a hundred dollar bill, a $20 bill and a five. He'll give one of the bills to whoever will come and hold their hand in that water, hold their hand in the water for that amount of time. You know, five seconds, you get the $5, 20 seconds, you get the $20 for a full minute. You get the hundred dollars. And in the middle, which is already, you know, just traumatic on its own. Literally, physically abusive. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but anyway, yeah. (laughs) Unspeak. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, I mean, if if my kids were being exposed to that, I would be pulling the roof down on those people's heads. Right. I mean, and that, and it really is like, you know, not to make it about my spiritual abuse measure, but embracing violence. Right. Like, I, I like that. I think it's an apt sort of, title oh, for is. that it right? is. i think it's great yeah absolutely and i think but here's where it gets next level so we're in the middle of that like that's yeah. what's playing out you got a room full of kids teenagers and suddenly the lights go out and over the speakers they play like hell house sounds so it's adults pre-recorded screaming in anguish and then that lasts for i don't know 30 seconds or a minute and then the lights come up and there's an altar call Right now, so on a spiritual abuse scale, that's off the scale. Right? I mean, that's like that's like atomic bomb kind of abuse, right? And it seems to me like in the first case, you have there's a mixture. There's there's imaginativeness, there's creativity. Interviews from hell. Interviews from hell. Yeah. But it's it's just turned up too high. Yeah. And I shouldn't have been in the room for it. But in the second case, because you've got a spirituality that's open to that kind of thing without any wisdom. We go from that to this, which again is catastrophically disastrous for everybody involved. Like everyone is getting traumatized, not just the kids in the room. And I think to me, the most harmful thing about Pentecostalism is that we did not have the people or the infrastructure to keep the first thing from becoming the second thing. Right. So we had a spirituality that and a kind of egalitarian openness that would allow this first thing to happen. Right. Which is a mixed bag, right? Like there, mm-hmm. there's good and there's bad. And it's just a matter of. It's kind of like it. a great, like from a, I was thinking from like a media storytelling perspective, it's like, wow, that's pretty <laughs> creative it, idea it, for a it sermon. Was cinematic. I mean, that's the thing. Right. Yeah. Part of the reason I can remember where my body was, like like her, the, the sermon she gave, I can remember the posture of her body, the tone of her voice. I mean, it was absolutely cinematic. And so was the second one. Right. Right. But the slide from one to the other is, you know, terrifying. And but, that, and it's, it, yeah, that, to me, that's what, what grieves me most about the people of my youth is that they, they didn't see how that could become this. How, because they could see some good in this, they were willing to risk that. Yeah. And unwisely, I think. And isn't that, though, kind of what I'm saying about the catch 22 of the risk yes. reward? Yeah. You can sort of, gerrymander or jerry rig however you want to think about it like a particular church experience where 
you ensure that there's a handful of wise elders of both genders and, you know, whatever, like you can, you can kind of try and hand pick it. Yeah. One way of thinking about it is that the reason that the adults in the second instance thought that that was appropriate is this thoroughly enchanted, highly spiritualized view of the world and the afterlife Mm -hmm. such that any amount of terrifying people is justified if it is in service of saving souls. Well, see, but that, that that's, and this is, I think a really interesting point. I actually think there's a, there's a step missing there that I tried okay. to name a moment ago in that. I think that when you have an enchanted, like charged atmosphere and then people come to it in an American culture where success is, you know, go back to true detective for a moment, the Bible, as you said, you remember when they, toward the end, of, I can't remember what episode it is, but toward the end of the season, where they're not, we're now in the present timeline, and they're preparing to solve the case. Finally, they're they're catching up, and they're asking, "You know, what have you done in the intervening years since we've seen each other last?" And Rust starts talking about, "You know, I spent some time in Alaska and did this and did that." He said, "You have to be careful what you get good at." have to be careful what you get good at. Like, like I had a knack for this way of life and then it trapped me and it's turned me into this person. I think that some of what happened and that, that kind of intervening step is somewhere in the civil rights era, somewhere in the eighties, those churches that had this kind of poor black immigrant spirituality, that was one thing it started to work. And now the leaders think they have to keep it working. And now they've abandoned the the wisdom of that tradition, and they're just working with the mechanics to, in in this kind of technical sense. Yeah, they become really technocrats. They That's are right. maximizing sure. butts in seats, baptism numbers, conversion yes. numbers, and they go, "Well, we if we amp this up to eleven, we'll get more decisions for Christ." Absolutely. What I loved about I think it was my conversations with Tony Jones around the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast. I don't know if this came up on the official podcast, but it was like, well, but what are you being baptized into? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the wisdom part is yes. like, yeah, yes. if you have a healthy, for lack of a better term, church community, you know, whether or not it relies on the Pentecostal gifts of the spirit or something, Absolutely. if you just have a, a community that is run by wise people and you baptize people into that, great. And if you're baptizing them into a cult of personality, like at Mars Hill, not, not as great, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> not as good, not That's as good of a exactly. thing to baptize them into. And then of course people will have their own lives and it'll, they'll go their own ways and stuff. But yeah. yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Just to make clear, I, I know you're tracking me, but just to underscore the point, the enchantment, the intensity, the sweatiness doesn't translate directly like that doesn't there are risks in that i don't want to downplay it yeah but i don't think the risks are the technocratic mechanical product oriented success dominated spirituality that we're talking about now i think that was an it was alienated from itself and i think what happened in my parents generation is the movement lost touch with its own wisdom right and so again i don't mean to downplay the risks that were there in the tradition, they are already there, but we became, at least in America, 
at least in the dominant forms of Pentecostalism, we became slaves to success. Like whatever worked, we were going to do. Butts and seats, money in the offering, we're going to do that. And we're going to keep doing that and turning it up to 11, 12, 13. And whatever theological rationale we gave to that, I don't know that there were that many grifters, but I think the whole spirituality became a grifting. It just, it was a, it was a machine feeding itself. We've got to have people here. We got to do whatever we have to do to get people here. And I think that's a, that's not a Pentecostal problem. That's an American Christianity problem. Yeah. You know, that might just a, be a human problem. actually, and, and in some ways a human problem. That's right. Yeah. It, but the, what makes it American and Christian, I think is it's, it's a socialization process that's borrowing Protestant language to animate it. Right. So it's, a, I wrote this down the other day. It's a socialization that's serving a politics by utilizing religion. Right. So it, it's a, it has a culture that it wants to sustain a politics that it thinks it needs to sustain that culture. And it's animated by these religious terms and concepts and practices. I love that model. Yeah. I think that's what it turned into, but I think that that wasn't its essence. That that's an alienation from its essence. Uh, Alexander Schmemann, who's a well-known Orthodox theologian, he argued that that's the warping power of the American way of life. That any religion, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Buddhism, Pentecostalism doesn't matter what it is. Under the pressures of American life, it warps into product-oriented, success-dominated organisms or organizations. The what's really driving the bus, right? Yeah, is not our religion. It's not our religion. No, and and Trump made that as clear as anything in our lifetimes. Yeah, right. Religion is downstream from sociopolitics. That's right. And I think that's true for most liberal mainline Protestants as well. And I don't, you know, I, I think it's partly true for me. And I'm, I don't think that I'm an, yeah. immune to that. It's like, anyway, well, yeah. let's, let's stop here. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone on long enough. I could Good. talk to you indefinitely, Chris. What an absolute joy. Man, thank you for this. This is so much fun. I learned a lot. I'm going to put a link to your Substack and this recent sermon collection going through Lent, even though by the time... This comes out, that'll be more appropriate for next year, but there's pastors who listen to this and other folks who like to have like Lenten devotional stuff, but describe the sub stack. Like what, what do we, when, like I'm about to go sign up, I didn't even know you had one. Now I will be signing up. What am I getting myself into? Yeah. A couple different things. Part of what motivated me to do it is to move toward more long form engagement. So I do some podcast, long conversations like this one. and kind of as it interests me, you know, so some of them are related to theological issues. Some of them more kind of cultural, philosophical. I'm recording one soon about God in American literature, specifically the the great American, the canon, so to speak. So like, that's just basically what I'm interested in, long form conversations. I share some poems there, some of my art. Um, it's kind of a place for me to to share my work that's off the beaten path of social media, the instantaneous sharing of Twitter or Instagram or so on. What hit me a couple of years ago was that I I wanted to build a space, to hold a space where a different kind of conversation than the exchange on Facebook or Twitter would be possible. And that's what, I mean, Substack just happened to show up in front of me as a way of doing that. 
Like it, it's it's more of my voice than anyone should ever have to listen to. <laughs> that's what you're getting in the substance. We call that a podcast. <laughs> that's right. uh, yep. That's why I have two of them. Jeez Louise. <laughs> Cannot help myself. But it, it's so, I mean, I love the learning of it. Like it, tonight, there are like seven of us who are jumping on. So it's, yeah. you know, for me, it's, it's, it's very, I don't want to say low stakes because I care a lot about what's happening, but like it's, um, it's speakeasy theology. And the reason I've called it that is that I wanted to have that, that feel of off the beaten path, something you seek out because you want to be there with people who are there, you know? So that's, that's what I'm after at least. It's theology that you have to know the password for in order to get in. That's what makes it easy. That's exactly right. And the password is always changing. That's exactly right. Hey man, thank you for this. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I'm glad we made it happen. Absolutely, dude. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.